Yeah, he's got a good occupation. He just can't speak English very well. That happens. That's not racist. That's just farcical because you're pointing out real-life situations. Hello, and welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Arthur Gary Bishop. And where did you do your research for this one, Katie? This one was Mormon Murderer by Scott Fraser. And who recommended this? Rory's mom. Of course. My mom's a great mom. Oh, yeah. I was hoping Rory would ask and I could be like, your mom. Oh, oh well, I'm sorry. Rory's mom still works for that, though. And uh, where is this one located? Salt Lake City, Utah. Oh, so we're up in Moville. Moville? Is that what people call it? I don't know. All right, Katie, start us off with the story of Arthur Gary Bishop. Arthur Gary Bishop was born September 29th, 1952 in Hinckley, Utah, a small close-knit town of around 700 residents. Where's Hinckley in? Like 140 miles outside of Salt Lake City. Which direction? East, west, south, north? I thought you were going to know the answer to this, Rory. I've never been to Hinckley. Doesn't matter. You're our Utah expert. We I know have four Gordon. states, and we're still missing an expert for one of those states. <laughs> oh, yeah? I think it's north, but I looked at the Google, because I just like get on Google Maps, and I put in the center of Salt Lake to the center of this town, and I look oh. at the mileage. I don't actually like Let's map see. it and ask for directions. You don't want to go to this small, quaint little town where this boy r- murder raper was from? Okay, I'm about to tell you exactly where Hinkley Utah is. Can we get um, specific directions? Of course. So, from I'd like coordinates Tucson? of City Hall in Hinkley, Utah, please. Oh, so it's south. It's far south of Salt Lake. It's okay. past Provo. It's actually down uh, past uh, Nephi, but still north of Fillmore. Who the fuck named the cities in Utah? I mean, that's not even the worst one. Nephi is not the worst one. It's, isn't that a book of the Book of Mormon? I mean, it's all pretty Mormon-based. I mean, we literally have a city in Arizona called Colorado City. Yeah, nobody thought that went through either. So, uh, it looks like it's it's pretty far south. Like, it's right off of I-15. There's a school actually in Richfield that's a little bit of north of there. Uh Okay, yeah. we were kidding about needing all those details, Rory. <laughs> but if, if you're looking, it looks like it's just outside of Delta, Utah. Bishop was the oldest of six brothers who were all raised as devout Mormons. Bishop did extremely well in school, earning honor roll every year and devoting his free time to being an Eagle Scout. Bishop was also extremely socially awkward and unpopular in school, earning the titles of geek and nerd. One person who was always close to him was his younger brother, Douglas, who looked up to Bishop and did his best to emulate him. Years later, Douglas would be arrested within three days of his brother for molesting 26 boys aged as young as five in Provo, Utah, between 1976 and 1983. So there's a whole nother case in this. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. The apple don't fall far from the other apple since they're brothers. I think that's how that saying goes, definitely. Mm-hmm. 100% correct. Obviously. Despite being arrested for very similar crimes, the two brothers insisted they had no idea what the other was involved in or that the other was also a pedophile. Both Douglas and Arthur also insist that they were never sexually abused as children, which is often a factor leading to pedophilic behavior later in life. Is it common for this situation where brothers are bookend molesters, I guess? Bookend pedos. I don't think so. I think it's usually like the odd one out, but everything about this is really odd because we know that there's usually a specific pattern that's followed, and number one, usually they're sexually abused when they're children, and then they do it to children later in life, and they're also never good at school and motivated, and he was 
all of those things. Interesting. He didn't show any signs. Normally, you can look back at someone's life and say, oh, you knew it was coming. Yeah. yeah. And with him, it's just like it came out of nowhere. So, none of, are there any other factors that would lead into this besides that, that he shows or you learned about or you read about? There wasn't really a whole lot about his childhood, but I assume it was something to do with, with having six brothers and not being, I guess, loved enough, probably. He probably didn't receive as much attention as she, he should have as a child or as an infant, and maybe a nature-nurture thing. Interesting. Happened, All right. Strange how that works, and they're just like... To go from, oh, I didn't get enough love, to let me just give too much love. Yeah, and he also, I don't know, there's tons of things that could have happened. At 19, Bishop traveled to the Philippines to complete his Mormon mission, which he did successfully. Once he returned to Utah, he completed four years at Stephen Henniger College and received his degree in accounting with honors. Oddly enough, Bishop did not show any signs of a typical psychopathic serial killer. Generally, we see young serial killers doing poorly in school and being unable to complete major milestones in their lives as they become bored easily. Bishop was devoted to everything he did and succeeded in many aspects of his life. It's unknown exactly when he began molesting young boys, but we can assume he fantasized long before he committed the act for the first time. Now, was there like a build-up like with serial killers, with uh, serial molesters? Is there like a build-up time frame or a pattern to any of it? I have no idea when it started, but I assume from his actions later in his life, he was probably in his teens, and it probably started with your typical taking pictures, and then moved on to the actual molestation. In February of 1978, Bishop was arrested for the first time for embezzling $9,000 from a car dealership he worked at. Which was a lot of money in 1978, I think, because that's like what a car went for in 1978. Mm -hmm. It's like a whole car. Yeah, embezzled a car's worth of money. He was found guilty, but received a suspended five-year sentence for promising to pay restitution. Instead of paying, he disappeared completely, re-emerging in Salt Lake City under the name Lynn Jones. That type of stuff could happen back then, I think. They hadn't, like, that was back when they still took people on their word. Oh, you're going to pay it back? All right, good, buddy. Yeah, so no one in Hinkley's ever going to go up to Salt Lake City. Doesn't your brother live in Provo? No. He lives in Ogden. 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 All these names sound the same to me. Provo South. Nephi, Wi-Fi, they're all the same. The middle of uh, Utah is Levan, Utah, and backwards is Naval. I'm just starting to feel like you could just like open up the Book of Mormon and just flip it and point with your eyes closed and you could point at the name of a Utah city. I mean, Hinckley, Gordon B. Hinckley was like the president of the church for a long time. So there's Hinckley, Utah. Yeah. And the front of one of those Books of Mormon, it probably says in honor of Hinckley B. Hinckley. Gordon B. Hinckley. Gordon B. I don't think it does, but. I'm just saying, his name's in there somewhere. He was a prophet at one time, I think, so. Yeah, he probably wrote his own book and stuck it in there. That's what prophets do. Not really. Not in the Mormon church. They just interpret, because they're God's living representation on earth. The more you know. To avoid detection, he cut off all contact with his family, sold all of his belongings, and started a new life. In October that year, Lynn Jones disappeared, and Bishop started over as Robert Downs, the alias he would keep until his arrest. I would definitely prefer to be Robert Downs instead of Lynn Jones. Those are both not very good names, though, I'm not going to lie. Not really creative names, either. Lynn Jones is definitely not creative. I mean, honestly, back then you could come back as Grathar Hammerfist or something, and no one would say anything. you just tell me you're Norwegian. Back then you could have just been McLovin. It was before the movie came out. Yeah, I mean, basically anything, and he chose 
Robert Downs. Yeah, but the Lane more you Jones. the more unique your name is, the more attention people will pay to you, and you don't want a ton of attention when you're trying to disappear. Hide in plain a sight. Girl's name. Here's the problem: is if you <laughs> hide in plain sight, no one's gonna find you. So if someone's like, "Oh, look, there goes Hammerfist," and you're walking down the street and trying, everybody's gonna be like, "Yep, that's Hammerfist." And don't fuck like, with Hammerfist. And it's like, no, that's Lynn Jones, and or Arthur Gary Bishop, and they're gonna be like, "No, that's Hammerfist." No one knows. When the church discovered Bishop had fled and refused to pay restitution, he was excommunicated. Well, that's the most harsh punishment the church can yeah. No out. heaven after yeah. earth for yes. you, boy. You are no longer part of the church. You lost a, your planet. I have a feeling this probably actually kind of was part of that building up to him getting worse and worse. Because if he was <laughs> devoted Mormon his whole life and then he gets excommunicated, that's not yeah. something you want to happen. Now living as Robert Downs, Bishop volunteered for the Big Brother Big Sister program, which provides disadvantaged children with adult mentors to help them through childhood. Bishop was extremely well-liked and respected by all the children in the program, and he would often invite them to his home or on camping trips with him. Okay, so I have to break and tell a story here. Okay. So my buddy Stubbs and I, when we were... Uh, no. Kids. I'm not liking where this story's well, going. Well, no. So my buddy Stubbs and I, when we were kids, we used to hang out in front of my house, ride bikes, you know, play. And one of the neighbors up around the corner, his father would always come walking by and would literally ask us if we wanted to go on the Boy Scout camping trip or if we wanted to go on some other trip or anything I got like that. Popsicles. It, it was along those lines. Later, we found out <laughs> that he got arrested for molesting his children. And possibly others, and he went to prison, and he was like the skinniest, nerdiest, most devout Mormon person I've ever met. Like one of those people. And it turns out he wanted to molest me and my buddy Stubbs. But since Stubbs and I were rebels, we never went. That legitimately happened. Like there was a predator in the neighborhood. You were rebels. Yeah, we didn't want to go. After his arrest, dozens of parents of young boys came forward saying that Bishop had molested their child. Most likely, the Big Brother program provided him with victims who were willing to do anything for either money or simply positive attention. Big Brother also came forward and said that they had gotten tips that Bishop had molested two children, but neither of them were his little brother, so they did nothing with the information. This is just the way things were in the 1970s, I guess. Yeah, and if you don't know, the little brother is basically like the child that's assigned to you as part of the program, not actually his little okay. brother. They knew about these allegations, but they were like, we're going to leave this guy. It's not it's not his kid, like his little mentee that he's menteeing. Yeah, he's not in charge of that kid, so I think back then they were much more honest when they came forward. They didn't try to cover it up as much. They were basically like, We had information but we didn't do anything with it instead of nowadays where it's like, We had the information and we did this and this and they never actually did anything. Well, it's probably also because people weren't so lawsuit happy back then. Yeah. That generation that started with uh think my generation or the generation before mine. On October 14th, 1979, Bishop ran into his neighbor's child, four-year-old Alonzo Daniels, outside the complex. He offered the boy candy to convince him to go back to his apartment with him, and the boy agreed. Once inside, Bishop undressed the child and attempted to molest him, but the boy was crying too much, and Bishop became frustrated. In his anger, Bishop grabbed a hammer and hit Alonzo, which only made him dazed, confused, and cry even more. Bishop's anger continued to grow, so to quiet the child, he carried him to the bathroom and drowned him in the tub. Once he was dead, he stuffed his body into a large cardboard box and carried him to his car, right past Alonzo's mother, who was outside the complex, frantically calling for her son. Bishop drove Alonzo's body to Cedar Fort and buried his body in the desert. Over the following days, hundreds of volunteers searched for the boy, but he was never found. 
So my hammer fist joke just became crazy unfunny. Over the next year, Bishop took a cooling-off period, anxious that he would be caught for murdering a child that lived directly across the hallway from him. In need of an outlet for his urges, he began adopting puppies from local animal shelters and killing them. Over a year, he adopted and killed as many as 20 dogs. He later told investigators it was quote-unquote so stimulating and that the dog's cries were exactly like Alonzo's. Oh, this guy's fucking sick. On November 8th, 1980... Bishop's urges were no longer being controlled by killing dogs, so he went out looking for his second victim. He met 11-year-old Kim Peterson, who was looking for someone to buy his roller skates so he could purchase a new pair. Bishop agreed to pay him $35 for the skates, around $110 in today's money, a significant amount to an 11-year-old boy. The two agreed to meet at the roller rink, and Kim let his parents know where he was going and what he was doing, but failed to mention who he would be with. Bishop was able to lure Kim back to his apartment, where he bludgeoned him to death with a hammer. He buried his body in Cedar Fort next to Alonzo's. Several people at the roller rink saw Kim with a white male, but no one suspected Bishop, who lived only a few blocks away from the rink. Holy cow. And this is in Salt Lake City, correct? Mm-hmm. Wow. Eleven months later, on October 20th, 1981, Bishop laid eyes on his third victim, four-year-old Danny Davis, who was shopping with his grandmother in a grocery store. Bishop later described him as, quote, the most beautiful little boy and convinced him to leave the store with him. He drove him to his apartment, a half block away, where he molested him before covering Danny's nose and mouth and suffocating him to death. His body was buried next to Alonzo and Kim's. One of the largest searches in Utah history was launched to find Danny, but lack of any sort of description made finding his abductor impossible. Still, no one thought to question Bishop, who lived within a few blocks of all three missing boys. Police were at a loss because the victims varied so greatly. Kim and Danny were both white, but Alonzo was African-American. Kim was almost three times as old as the other two missing boys, making it seem he may have been abducted by a completely different person. Do we do we know where his apartment was in Utah? I don't or? know. Okay. It's kind of crazy that they were all in like a real close area and no one looked. Well, I don't know why they'd be looking for him specifically either, but he was in the radius, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was questioned, but no one really thought twice when they talked to him. I guess he was a pretty good liar or he just seemed like a normal dude. Bishop waited almost two years before his next murder. Six-year-old Troy Ward was abducted on June 23, 1983, his sixth birthday, while playing at a park near his home. Bishop lured the boy back to his apartment, where he molested him before hitting him with a hammer and then drowning him. Bishop later told investigators that he planned on letting Troy go, but he threatened to tell his parents. When Troy didn't arrive at the spot he was supposed to be picked up from, his family immediately knew something was wrong and called police. They found a woman in the park who had seen Troy and a man leave together, but assumed they were father and son because they looked so comfortable together. Bishop buried Troy's body near Big Cottonwood Creek rather than Cedar Fort. Now, why did he switch up his uh, burial grounds? He was probably scared he was going to get caught. He was probably had that looming feeling that he needed to do something differently. He, you said he went from Cedar Fort to where? Big Cottonwood Creek, which is a part of a national park, I think. Yeah, I don't think I think it's a little bit closer to Salt Lake than uh, Cedar Fort is, anyway. Or he was getting ballsy and he thought he could go closer and closer to the apartment since he hadn't gotten caught yet. If it's closer. Bishop waited only a month before killing his fifth victim, 13-year-old Graham Cunningham. The boy was supposed to go on a camping trip, chaperoned by Bishop, on the 16th, but Bishop murdered him two days before they left on June 14, 1983. He somehow was able to kidnap Graham from his home and take him back to his apartment where he molested and murdered him. Once the story had hit the nightly news, Bishop went to the Cunningham home and offered any help he could provide to the family. 
how does someone do that is what's his uh what would you say is his diagnosis like or something like that is he just a crazy narcissistic narcissist do you think he's a, an actual psychopath sociopath where is he on the scale yeah, it's hard to tell because we don't know a lot about him but definitely some sort of personality disorder because he could go from i mean basically he felt guilty about what he did and that's why because he didn't go to the home in like a fuck you i killed your kid and now i'm gonna pretend like i'm trying to help he actually he said he went to the home actually offering to help them like he genuinely wanted to help even though he knew he was responsible so i think he could turn it on and off and basically forget what he had done and put it out of his memory before he went to the house and i mean he genuinely wanted to help them feel better about their kid missing even though he was the one that mm-hmm yeah, so he's he felt some inkling of empathy, so he's probably not psychopathic, but it's hard to tell. When police heard about the supposed act of kindness, it finally caught their attention. They were able to lure Bishop to the station under the guise of helping find Graham. Once they looked into his background, they discovered his other alias, Lynn Jones, was wanting for embezzling $10,000 from an employer and writing bad checks in his boss's name. By the end of the evening, Bishop had confessed to all five murders. The next day, he took police to the grave sites for all five boys. In his house, police found the hammer used in multiple murders, along with dozens of photos of Bishop's victims, many of whom he molested but did not murder. He was charged with five counts of first-degree murder, five counts of kidnapping, and one count of sexual abuse of a minor, as the autopsies could only prove one of his victims were molested. Oh my god. So he confessed, they caught him, Mm -hmm. and... Pretty easily. I think that was also part of the guilt thing, is when he finally got caught, he kind of just boiled over and had to tell somebody what he had been doing. Because a lot of the time with people like this, it's an act of intention, but they don't mean to kill them. It sounds odd, but they really just want to molest and then generally let them go. But if there's a threat of them being caught for it, basically, then that's when they kind of freak out and they accidentally kill them which obviously didn't happen five times but the feeling the first one was an accident and then he went on to just say okay well it worked this time so i'm gonna do it again i was just looking at pictures of this guy and he is one of the creepiest looking human beings yeah he's like utah's john wayne gacy basically i don't think he was as fucked up as gacy was basically like he wasn't a psychopath gacy definitely was but they're very similar in their in their motives and what they did basically how they lured them arthur gary bishop's trial began february 27 1984 his defense argued that pornography is what drove him to be unable to resist his attraction to children or urge to kill once the concept was introduced to bishop he ran with it telling everyone that would listen that pornography was the reason he murdered five young children much like ted bundy he told the salt lake tribune that had he not been introduced to porn he wouldn't have developed an attraction to children nor murdered anyone Of course, this defense did not work, and Bishop was convicted on all counts and sentenced to death. He was given the option between firing squad and lethal injection and chose the latter, completely waiving his right to appeal in 1988 and requesting an immediate execution date. Bishop, in his final days, was described oddly enough as genuinely remorseful and repentant. Guards and prison psychologists described him as the most repentant prisoner they had ever seen on death row. He explained in his last words that he was not attempting to be a martyr, he was doing the right thing by allowing himself to be taken out of the world. Bishop's execution went smoothly, and he died on June 10th, 1988. Was this close to one of Utah's last uh, executions? Because I don't remember there being very many executions while I was there in Utah. Um, I think, I mean, in the 80s it was still 
still. You could actually be executed. Nowadays, it's pretty rare that anyone anywhere gets executed because we have to go through so many appeals and yeah. stays of execution, and usually the mayor doesn't want to sign off on anything. So probably was one of the last ones, but I'm sure they've had at least one. Yeah. I can look. Yeah, please do. Now, what questions did you want to ask me about Utah? I was basically going to ask, I mean, what what your opinions were on his childhood leading up to basically just like snapping and all of this going down with absolutely no lead up that we know of. I have to say that I do know, actually, I have met a few kids that you could describe that had the same childhood as Arthur Gary Bishop. Kids that were kind of considered nerdy, that were kind of dorky, that were Eagle Scouts. Like There were tons of them in Utah. Like Being a scout was a big deal. And so you did meet these kids. As far as molestation when he was a child, I... I mean, he probably was. Something happened to him. I don't think there was anything that just sort of led to the, him snapping like this. But yeah, I knew uh, actually quite a few kids like that description of a child. So being a social outcast in a little tiny town is probably pretty hard on someone. Probably, yeah. And then I'm sure that his motivation was more to receive positive attention from someone rather than actually wanting to do well in school. Yeah. Because... If you're, you know, if you have seven siblings or if you're one of seven kids, you're not going to receive as much attention as you're craving at home. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's a common thing in Utah to have tons of brothers and sisters. Like, Well, yeah. Especially when you're Mormon. Yeah. So this whole, the whole thing that weirds me out completely is that the Boys and Girls Club just came out and said, you know, like, yeah, we had reports that he had molested them, but it wasn't his kids. So we did track shit. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if there is like a huge generational gap thing where like our parents' generation kind of did see more of that swept under the rug where kids were getting touched and felt up and stuff and they just sort of swept it under the rug and nobody talked about it. Where it was hidden in the guise of the church or whatever, just like Catholic priests and stuff. I'm sure it was, yeah. Um, For executions, we have William Andrews, who was one of the two in the Hi-Fi murders. He was executed in 92. And then there was one in 96, one in 99, and one in 2010. Who was in 99? Is it listed there? Joseph Mitchell Parsons. Do we know anything about him? Because I, I kind of remember people protesting the death penalty around that time. Um, It looks like he killed somebody. Ah. Executed for the August 1987 murder of Richard Lynn Ernest. Ah, uh, well, see, I don't remember any of that, but... Um, And then... Actually, because in Utah, you still, to this day, can choose firing squad or lethal injection, and it looks like the guy that was executed in 2010 chose firing squad. Really? Yeah. That's probably what I would choose as well. I mean, there's less ways it can go wrong. There's tons of executions that have gone. Exactly. Very, very wrong, especially when we had such a hard time getting phenobarbital. And I kind of remember someone telling me or hearing somewhere that uh, that was actually the most lethal form or, like, yeah, there were less mistakes, like, so it was 97% of the time the person died from firing squad. Yeah, you want your your percent to be pretty high when you're Killing someone, yeah. Killed, yeah. All right, well, is that going to do it for this? Uh, this is a pretty quick episode, guys, but uh, is that yeah, going to do it Yeah, I didn't want to linger on this one too long. Yeah, this one's pretty brutal. I can understand that. Thanks, Nancy. Yeah, thanks, Mom. <laughs>
All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast or on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast. And along with this episode, we're doing a bonus episode that should come out sometime that has a special guest since our special guest didn't come on for this episode. Yeah. Um. So that one's going to be a Rory and Jake one. I'm not hosting. It'll be super fun. All right. And as always, go ahead and give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. Uh, Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any ideas for episodes that you'd like to hear, make sure to shoot us an email and uh, we'll get you a sticker. Or just tell us you love us or hate us and we'll get you a sticker. And you can recommend stuff that's not from the four corners, I think, what's... We can start branching out. Yeah, we're going to start opening the books, guys. So send us all your creepy stuff from your neck of the woods, and we'll see what we can do about it. Oh, it's time to expand our reach. I'm stoked for Texas. Texas has a lot of crime. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers.